This is Sidebar, where we break away from the echo chamber to give you the inside track on the latest legal issues and trends in business, law, and society, and predict what they mean for your future. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Sidebar's Spotlight on ESG season which looks at how environmental, social and governance factors are affecting the legal sector. I'm Stephanie High, And I'm Emma Allen. We are both senior associates in the Disputes and Investigations team at Taylor Wessing. And we're joined by Tristan Yelland, a Forensic Investigations Director at Grant Thornton. Today, we're going to discuss ESG disputes and investigations, the litigation and investigatory risk to businesses, how it can be mitigated and our predictions for the future of ESG disputes. Let's get started. Thank you for joining us for episode five. On today's episode, we'll be talking about ESG disputes and investigations with a focus on the latest trends and our predictions for the near future. We'll be talking about some of the key litigation and investigatory risks for businesses, sharing thoughts on how those risks can be assessed and mitigated, and attempting to bring a healthy dose of perspective wherever possible. We're delighted to be joined today by Tristan Yelland, who is an accountant specialising in forensic investigations at Grant Thornton. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you today. I am very excited to be here with you talking about all things ESG. So ESG, I think we all know what it is at this point, but to kick off our discussion, why should businesses care about it from a litigation and investigations perspective? Steph? So I think we all know that the G in ESG has been subject to more and more increased regulatory scrutiny over the past couple of decades. But what I think is really interesting is the increased focus on the E and the S elements. So CSR was obviously the predecessor of ESG, uh, but there have been two major shifts recently. Firstly, the increase in regulation and the formalisation of reporting requirements in an increasing number of areas such as the gender pay gap and diversity reporting, um, and a heavy focus now on the environmental piece, which is rightly being given a huge amount of attention by governments, businesses, and ultimately society, which is having a huge impact on consumer behaviour. Just to add to what Steph was saying, ESG has been around for, for a very long time or a little while, but it is something which is very much of the moment. And because of that, there has been this rush by, by companies sort of in all sectors and throughout the world uh, to show everyone just how green they are, um, which is understandable. Um, the problem is that with the introduction of ESG reporting, these ESG credentials are increasingly going to come under the microscope of, of activist investors, consumers and regulators who are no longer going to be content with taking things at face value. This will put much greater importance on ESG reporting. Uh, the problem for business is that uh, reporting and capturing ESG data is very different to reporting and capturing financial data. Yeah, and you've both specifically mentioned there the the, the heavier focus um, in recent years on the environmental piece. And, you know, you can't turn on the TV or, or look at a newspaper without seeing that that's a really, really heavy focus for all of society. And I think that that matches up with what we're talking about here in terms of the area where there's the greatest litigation and regulatory risk for businesses. We're also seeing increasing environmental regulation um, of businesses, and, and that is a key trend. 
And in the last few years, we've seen the TCFD, which stands for the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, become adopted as something of a gold standard um, for financial disclosures in a climate context. Plus, the UK government has been clear that it wants to green the financial industry and is setting its own sustainability disclosure requirements. And, and that's a big priority. Having said that, I think it is important that we don't lose sight of all of the elements that comprise ESG and not just looking at the environmental piece, because whilst a lot of the legal landscape is being forged in the environmental space, the same risk assessments and the same kinds of considerations can apply to all of the other elements of ESG. So how do we think that businesses should think about these risks? Should they be breaking it up into the E, S and G elements? We've talked about the huge focus on E at the moment, but as you say, Emma, S and G also important. So should businesses be looking at this holistically? Uh, I think that's a, that's a really good question, Steph. And, you know, it's something that we've spoken to quite a few corporates about at, at Grant Thornton, and, and we've come across a range of answers. So it's clearly something uh, that people and corporates are still working out for themselves. M- my own point of view is that the E, the S and the G should be looked at holistically with G, the governance, overriding everything. Now, this is because governance sets the tone for a business. So if governance is poor, it will filter down through every part of the business and things such as any environmental policies that it may have in place will not be strictly enforced. Unsurprisingly, uh, research has shown that there is a clear link between poor governance and increased CO2 emissions, things like improper land use, as well as environmental degradation. An extreme example of this is the very strong positive relationship between the level of corruption in a country um, and the amount of deforestation which is occurring. The other side of this, of course, is that companies that have good governance embedded in their their DNA, I suppose, are are more likely to have effective compliance systems um, and to engage with their sort of stakeholders and communities. This means that it is less likely that ESG breaches will occur And if they do, they can be quickly identified and investigated. As another sort of final observation on this, I'd also say that we found that companies with good governance also naturally tend to just have more of a sustainability mindset and think more about their impact on society. Yeah, um, I suppose it's easy for us to sit here and say, though, isn't it, that, you know, you need to have good corporate governance and and policies in place um, to deal with these issues. And that's the answer. And we'll circle back to that, you know, when we when we come to looking at some practical tips for businesses, I think it is important that we acknowledge that, you know, we're talking about issues which are continually evolving. The landscape is changing and it can be difficult for businesses to adapt and to keep up and respond appropriately. So I think it is important that that, that that's acknowledged. I think that's particularly true on, on the E aspect, you know, these environmental re- regulations we've been discussing. It, it's, it's new ground for businesses and the shifting social expectations, which, which filter through to the businesses either, you know, through these reporting obligations, which could carry a regulatory or litigation risk. Um, but also where there are no formal reporting requirements, corporates are still seen to have social responsibilities in this sphere. So that could lead to reputational risk if businesses aren't seen to carry those out, or even litigation risk if misleading claims are made in relation to those business activities. Yeah, so we've alluded there to various different types of claims that we anticipate businesses could be faced with, but maybe we should remove some of the abstract here and actually get into the details of our key trends and predictions. 
and we can try and bring some perspective to those different risks throughout wherever possible. Yeah, and and just on that, before we sort of get into the detail here, it's it's probably worth mentioning that to date, a lot of the litigation in the environmental space has been directed at governments and the oil and gas industry. So big infrastructure projects, refining activities, and obvious emission-heavy projects and businesses. But with all the interest in this field, it does seem that the tide is turning and there is broader application here. Yeah, definitely. And all businesses, regardless of sector, need to be alive to the ESG risk. Uh, And I think that leads us on nicely to our first trend, which is ESG related disclosure risks. And and Tristan, I know you had some observations to make about that. As I touched upon earlier, um, I think that the introduction of mandatory ESG disclosures for companies is going to create a number of risks for them. And, you know, I should also say that the same will apply for any voluntary disclosures that companies make. And many companies are choosing to to make these voluntary disclosures in response to demands from from investors. There's probably quite a lot that I could say um, about what's what's causing or, or what, where the risks lie. But in in summary, the reason why I think there is this risk is because unlike financial data, which is stored um, in a central or single place in a business, ESG data is stored in many places in a business and may relate to any number of things. Um, for example, it may relate to emissions, biodiversity, employee information, water usage, things like that. This sort of information is is very difficult to collate into one uniform place, and businesses face a challenge doing that. And another reason why this is a risk is why ESG disclosure is a risk is because we found that a lot of companies still record all this ESG data in very basic uh, formats. Uh, typically just a single spreadsheet. This means that it's it's very susceptible to uh, mistakes, errors, and potentially fraud. And this will obviously become a problem for businesses when ESG disclosures, or if ESG disclosures, are subsequently challenged. And this is something that we think, you know, we may may happen in the future. So if stakeholders in a business or other interested parties seek to force the company to disclose the information that it claims supports its assertions or its its, its ESG disclosures, and the company is unable to substantiate those disclosures, then quite aside from the immediate reputational harm that may occur to the company, uh, it could be faced with a number of other claims, which um, we'll explore now. Yeah, I think hearing about your experiences there from an investigations perspective is really useful, actually, in terms of, you know, identifying where the um, litigation risks might lie. And I also think that, um, you know, what you were saying there about the differences between ESG reporting and disclosure risks, um, as compared with, you know, typical financial disclosures, is a really helpful way of thinking about the different risk profile um, that that ESG disclosures have. And disclosure claims by shareholders and stakeholders have been, you know, that's been a really key trend in the case law um, globally to date. Because, you know, as you said earlier, it follows a general feeling that stakeholders and investors aren't prepared to take things at face value. So businesses do need to be alive to the fact that one of the sort of first risks that they might face um, from an ESG perspective in terms of litigation is the risk of litigation being used as an information gathering tool, which might expose, you know, false claims that have been made, for example, in, um, you know, marketing or investment materials. And then, you know, that might lead to, to follow on claims. That leads us nicely into the second trend we were going to discuss, which is the risk of substantive claims being made by shareholders and other stakeholders. So obviously, we've discussed um, potential misrep claims arising out of inadequate or incorrect disclosures, but companies need to be alive to the risk of substantive claims in this sphere. 
So I know we've all seen the Shell case in the Netherlands where the court there ordered Shell to reduce its worldwide CO2 emissions by 45% by 2030. So this was a decision that attracted a lot of media attention um, because it was such a a groundbreaking case uh, where the court imposed a duty on a private company to take action worldwide to prevent climate change. Now, I know there's an expectation that this will have a domino effect um, and lead to more claims like this in, in other jurisdictions against private companies. But it is worth noting that Shell is appealing the decision. And so it'll be interesting to see what the outcome of that is. And it's also worth flagging, I think the courts would be reluctant to entertain a similar claim here in England and Wales. The, the Shell case was was founded on an unwritten duty of care under the Dutch Civil Code. And we obviously don't have a similar code here. Um, but companies should be aware that the English court does seem to be more willing to impose duties of care on UK-based parent companies for actions of its overseas subsidiaries in a similar context. So corporate structures based in the UK do need to have an eye on the risks arising out of activities in their groups as a whole. Yeah, I definitely think this is an, an area to watch um, and and another area where we will see a heavier focus on private companies as opposed to, to governments. Um, you know, banks, pension funds and investment funds have all been targeted by shareholder action around the world um, and have faced claims that they have not factored climate risk into their decision making or have facilitated environmental harm through their lending projects um, or have failed to report on on indirect emissions from their investments or lending. It isn't something that we've seen uh, yet in the UK, but it is an an interesting trend uh, to observe. Yeah, and I definitely think we could see claims being formulated in a more inventive way over the next few years. You always hear this term, don't you, of activist shareholders. Um, and I think that we could see, you know, shareholders and stakeholders seeking to use litigation in, in inventive ways to try and influence company strategy, maybe even applying for injunctions to prevent companies from taking a certain course of action or specific performance in relation to company compliance with its own ESG commitments or, or the other formal standards that we've been mentioning. And I also think that we could see attempts to monetize ESG litigation through, for example, shareholder class actions, which are backed by litigation funding. So that could arise if, for example, it's alleged that an ESG breach has resulted in some kind of financial loss, for example, because there's been um, some form of greenwashing or some false claims having been made, which are said to have led to a wrongful inflation in the company's value. Just to add some of the perspective that we promised at the start, I think that type of claim is likely to be extremely challenging because firstly, you'd have to prove and quantify the loss, which is unlikely to be straightforward. Then there's the issue of working out whether the loss actually gives rise to a cause of action for the company and not the shareholders. So, you know, there's this rule called the rule against reflective loss. And then there's the further difficulty of getting a class action off the ground. So even if the opt-in procedure, which is available for representative actions, can be used, you know, there could still be a lot of hurdles, and that could be a whole podcast in itself. Uh, yes, that's, I mean, that's that's definitely something that's been seen in, in the US, um, hasn't it? And, and, and not just from an environmental perspective, but also in terms of, of, of subjects such as board diversity. So the same sorts of themes, but around misrepresentations and omissions regarding um, you know, the composition of uh, boards and hiring practices. You know, I would add that they haven't had much success, but it's worth taking note of how litigation is being used by stakeholders and, and the reputational risk alone, I think, is, is enough of a risk for businesses to consider. So hopefully we've added quite a bit of perspective on that, on that prediction. It probably is worth 
noting though that the other risk for boards to be wary of when we're talking about shareholder claims is is the risk that directors face derivative claims for breaches of their duties. Uh, so directors have a very broad duty to, to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its members. Although again, it might be helpful for us to, to bring a bit of perspective on that risk. Yeah. And I think that again, a claim like that would be very challenging, wouldn't it? Because the same points that I was just making about, um, you know, proving loss would arise. Plus you would need to show that there was knowledge in relation to the individual directors and you would need court permission to bring a derivative action in the first place. Um, so just, you know, repeating the comments really that Tristan just made, the reputational risk, the cost, the nuisance factor, um, I suppose, of that type of claim could mean that shareholders and stakeholders are prepared to do what it takes to get those kinds of claims off the ground. I think we've probably covered that trend sufficiently. So let's move on to talk about the risks posed by supply chains and the risk to parent companies, because we touched on that a bit earlier. What, what further thoughts do we have? Yeah, I think it's it's important that when companies consider their ESG strategy, you know, they don't just consider their own immediate business. They should really consider their international subsidiaries and their supply chain. You know, I think it's important for three reasons. Firstly, I think that increasingly companies are going to come under pressure to report on their scope three emissions. These are all indirect emissions that occur in a company's value chain. And and for many companies, this is actually where the majority of greenhouse gas emissions occur. Secondly, as Steph alluded to earlier, the UK court has found that uh, UK parent companies uh, may be found liable for the actions of their overseas subsidiaries. And this includes for things like ESG-related harms. And finally, problems at a supply chain can be just as damaging for a business as problems in the business itself. You know, we all saw what happened a few years ago in the case of Boohoo, when the media reported allegations of inhumane working conditions in its supply chain. This had an enormously detrimental effect on the company. I think all of this is is why companies really do need to pay attention um, to what's going on in their supply chain. And this emphasizes the, the importance of performing thorough due diligence checks and risk assessments um, on all of their business partners and their subsidiaries and, and uh, yeah, throughout the supply chain. Yeah, and if I could just pick up on something that you um, mentioned there, Tristan, you, you mentioned scope three um, emissions and, you know, that being something that businesses need to be aware of. And that's something which was specifically considered in the um, the Dutch Shell case that Steph was mentioning. In that case, the court found that Shell's emissions obligations extended all across its value chain. So down to the companies that it purchases its raw materials from and back up to its end users. So I think that's a, a really good point to have made. But let's move on to the final trend that we were going to discuss today, which is that in terms of ESG risk, lots of people's minds will automatically go to the big infrastructure, the energy industry and so on. But another area that will impact a lot of businesses is their product safety considerations. Steph, can you share some thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is something that we definitely need to be mindful of. um, And it's definitely something that's keeping our product safety and our product liability group busy at the moment. There's, There's a whole host of regulations to be aware of, which could be an episode in itself. But broadly speaking, some key themes are waste disposal, the sustainability of products and their packaging, the use of plastics and plastic tax. And again, that's a key area where the supply chain risk is very real for businesses. Yeah. So as you say, it's definitely not just a case, is it, of the big infrastructure. It is, you know, any business that has a, has products should also be thinking about this. So let's wrap up with some thoughts on what steps businesses can take in practice to address and mitigate these risks. 
So Tristan, you spoke at the start about the importance of corporate governance. So, and we promised we would revisit that. So maybe that's where we should start with in terms of um, how businesses can mitigate risk. Yeah, I mean, you know, I said before that uh, it's really important that the tone is set from the top. And I suppose I stand by this. You know, governance really, really is important. Setting the right tone from the top will demonstrate that the company is taking ESG issues seriously. Setting that right tone or getting the tone right from the start will not only help to make sure that it goes sort of it filters down through the rest of the business, but help to protect and enhance shareholder value. I'll also say, as an investigator, that it would be remiss of me not to say that an important part of any good ESG strategy is having a robust system in place to respond to any ESG breaches. And again, this comes under the G of of, of good governance. Because ESG issues can be very sensitive and attract media attention, we always recommend conducting an internal investigation as quickly as possible when any ESG breach occurs. And obviously, uh, with the help of uh, forensic accountants and uh, friendly legal advisors. But doing this will will help to establish the the facts of the case in a way that best protects the organisation and board and will provide comfort to shareholders that, that the company is dealing with any ESG issues in the appropriate way. Thanks, Tristan. I think there's such good points there, particularly talking about the messaging coming from the top of the business. And I think that's perhaps why we are seeing you know, ESG is just getting so much attention because that that is what's happening and businesses are really giving it their attention. I don't know about you, but I can't go on LinkedIn without seeing an article saying hashtag ESG at the top of my page because it's it's just everywhere. And just in addition to the point you made about having uh, a robust system in place to respond to, to ESG breaches, um, just to flag that it's also important to just make sure all of your businesses, directors and officers are educated on the relevant regulations and the company policies. And as you say, obviously seek professional advice as you need it, whether from your lawyers or your accountants or other advisors. And just another practical point would just be to ensure that any published materials have been properly scrutinised internally and potentially externally if you need it, just to make sure that the ESG statements that you are making they do stack up. Yeah, and I think another thing that businesses could consider is whether it's appropriate to set up a whistleblowing hotline, for example, or some other kind of reporting mechanism um, internally to make sure that there are appropriate avenues for people working in the business to flag up issues. And when we advise businesses um, on corporate governance, we use the mantra prevent, detect, respond. And I think that aptly summarises the things that we've been talking about in this section in terms of, you know, some uh, practical tips for, for mitigating risk. The other thing I would mention is that there are an increasing number of insurance products coming onto the market, which are designed to address ESG related risks. So I think it'll be interesting to see if that becomes more prominent as a way for businesses to try and address and mitigate some of the risks that they might be facing in this space. That was a bit of a whistle-stop tour of um, some of our key trends and predictions in the ESG space. Obviously, this is an area that's that's only going to continue to broaden in scope and develop. But hopefully with proper advice and planning, it should be possible for most businesses to, to mitigate those risks and hopefully maximise the opportunities presented by this increased focus on ESG. And on that note, I think all there is left to say is thanks for listening. And thanks again to our guest for today's episode, Tristan Yelland from Grant Thornton. So that's it for this episode of Sidebar. And a big thank you to Tristan for joining us. 
Look out for more from our Spotlight on ESG season soon. If you'd like to learn more about what ESG might mean for you, please visit our website at taylorwessing.com forward slash ESG. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you for listening to Sidebar. Tune into our next episode by subscribing now and have the inside track on the latest legal issues and trends in business, law and society and what they mean for your future.